0: We're in Exodus chapter 20, as we work our way through the scriptures, a little review. God has given his Ten Commandments, spoken to the people directly by God himself from the top of Mount Sinai. And we have thunderings, lightnings, smoke, the trumpet voice of God. And it's bellowing down from the cloud atop the mountain. And this scares the people. It scares Israel to the point where they tremble. I don't know if you've ever been afraid to the point where you tremble. But uh, it's it's not a very pleasant place to be <laughs> to, to the point where you're trembling. The people... Uh, They have a request of Moses, and they say, Moses, you speak to us, lest God's voice kills us. God is scaring the people of Israel by simply manifesting himself in the physical to them, his voice. God's intent is that the people will fear him enough that they will be obedient to the commandments to stay away from and refrain from stand. But Moses, he says, do not fear. And he's really saying, do not be terrified. <laughs> For God has come to test you. And this morning in the safety and comfort of our strong metal building here, in these gray overstuffed theater type chairs, well, you can imagine those, we can miss out on how frightening it must have been to have been there at Mount Sinai. Now, all Israel had for shelter there, out in the wilderness, was sheepskin type tents, and a tent is not a secure or safe structure. Israel is afraid, and part of the reason is there are no local storm shelters and not even a sturdy building to run into. Occasionally, outdoors-type people would get caught in thunderstorms out on mountaintops. And a few years back, some hikers uh, were hiking on Half Dome out in Yosemite National Park when a thunderstorm rolled in. They're huddled together on top of Half Dome and lightning strikes. And one of the people, one of the men was hit by lightning, but it wasn't the lightning that killed him. He went into convulsions and went over the edge of Half Dome. And he fell several thousand feet to his death. So when you're hiking out on a mountaintop, always beware of the weather. And when you live in Tornado Alley, and we're there, (laughs) beware of thunderstorms. And I don't have to tell you that. I'm sure you're aware of that. But God, then he tells Moses his message to the people while they're in this state of fear and he has their attention. So let's pick it up in Exodus 20 verses 22 through 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to me, God's of silver or gold, and you shall not make for yourselves any images. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offering. Your sheep, your oxen, and every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. The first thing God declares here is, Do not make any idols to me. Don't try to represent me with some golden little idol or something like that. And it's a prideful thing to even begin to think... We as human beings or mankind can make an idol that looks like God. The Hindus, they have their many, many false gods. The Buddhists, they have their little Buddhas, and the ones I've seen, they're always gold in color. <laughs> and God tells Israel, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to go there. No images, no idols especially of what you think I look like. Now, we as Christians, we're blessed to worship the true and living God, but we also know that God is spirit. And it offends God, I'm sure, when different religions try to make or craft some idol and say, this is what God looks like. Now, if you and I, and we do, care how we appear, what we look like, because when you take a family photo, you spend a lot of times on making sure you look good. And you pose and even repose for the family picture. One of the big things of a wedding is the photographer. And if you've all been participating in weddings, And they will sometimes take more time than the wedding ceremony just to take their pictures. But have you ever looked at a picture of yourself and remarked, I look terrible? You know what we never hear? That picture flatters me. We never hear that. I look really good. I wish I looked that good in person. (laughs) We don't hear that. But now, imagine a man who's never seen God and he will take it upon himself to make an idol of God. And he will fashion out what he thinks God looks like. God declares outright here, I don't like that. You insult me. <laughs> now, now, I like to think Calvary chapels have a dress code that's pleasing to God. Why would I say that? Well, give me a chance. <laughs> Notice what God has to say about altars. Altars of sacrifice that honor him and the garments that the priest wear. He said, do not chip or polish the stones that you build an altar with. When you build an altar, leave it Natural our Calvary Chapel sign out in the parking lot when you enter in uh, was a natural stone taken out of a creek bed and we had Calvary Chapel engraved upon it. Now the guy that did the engraving he said it may break the stone. I said you carve it we'll put it up. (laughs) We got it up without it breaking so we have a natural stone out there. Uh, But sacrificial offerings were large, and they were large enough to put a full animal on it, and it was sort of like, really, a barbecue grill. And God declares, leave those stones alone. Leave them in their natural form, no polished granite top countertops (laughs) for God, because God is not impressed with man's craftsmanship In building ornate things like golden altars or huge plush sanctuaries. We do those things for ourselves. There was a TV preacher a few years back, and he was very proud of his golden altar. And he would speak in front of his golden altar. And I thought, God says, I'm not into that. (laughs) But God is not impressed with anything that takes attention away from himself, including our clothes. Now, the priests had limitations on what they were to wear. I was at a, large church, a mega church out in California and I heard a hippie type person tell the preacher that was in a three-piece suit, he says, I can't see Jesus because of your suit, man. (laughs) And I thought, he's got a point. (laughs) Now there's nothing wrong with wearing something nice to church, I'm not going to dare go there. But I don't think for a moment that our clothes impress God. Originally, uh, the clergy would wear uh, robes so that everybody would look the same. But then somebody decided to put hash marks on the sleeves of the robe. (laughs) Or maybe a little uh, tassel around the neck. And they became a means to where that person wearing them tried to look pious. God desires that altars built to him be plain and simple. He spells it out. Don't touch it with a tool. And so, as we move through this, I'm going to give you a qualifier. I love to give qualifiers. The only way I know to keep from getting bogged down as we go through the Old Testament here and issues of rules and regulations, uh, even genealogies of the Old Testament, is to take sections of Scripture, like chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and 1 through 11 there, they spell out the behavior of servants to their owners and how the owners are to treat their servants and by all means read these in your daily devotion. However, we're going to just kind of skip over that touching the high points and, uh, we will understand hopefully that these scriptures were written for Israel many centuries ago and, uh, Take it in that light. Verses 1 through 11. They're guidelines of chapter 21. For the judges of Israel over the people. And how the people are to treat their servants. And the last time I checked with you. Or visited your homes. I didn't see any servants in your homes. So it's kind of a thing of the past. But as a slave It spells out, if you had a good master and wanted to serve him for life, then verse 6 applies. You would voluntarily have your ear pierced with an awl, and then you became property of that owner for life. Or you became his bond slave. And many slaves did not want to be forced to leave their good master, so they would voluntarily have their ear pierced and they would put a ring in their ear and he became his master's servant for life. In verses 12 through 27, it it defines uh, murder versus manslaughter, and there's a difference, there's a big difference. In verses 28 through 36, it talks about animal control laws. But murderers under the law had no protection from the law. Capital punishment prevailed. And in fact, God required that a government of of men that capital punishment was mandatory. That was from God. And let me urge you to read through these different sections, these different punishments for bad behavior or evil behavior or, you know, dangerous behaving animals. But anyway, let me draw your attention to verse 20 of chapter 21. If you beat a servant, male or female, with a rod so that the servant dies, you shall be punished. Now, that's good to hear. (laughs) You you, you couldn't totally abuse a servant or a slave that was under your care. You you know, there was... a. punishment to be paid there but slavery was commonplace up through the time of Christ even up through the time of the writing of Scripture and at the time of Jesus 60% of the world was indentured slavery that's a lot of people and the Exodus is 1500 years before Christ but yet still indentured servanthood exists today. But compensation under the law is spelled out in verses 23 through 27. And it's a very well-known compensation. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, these compensation laws of God, were to limit the severity of punishment. It was not the requirement for punishment. The eye for an eye was the most you could do. You couldn't go beyond that. It was the most punishment you could render out. And so we see God putting limitations on what the punishment could be. You couldn't kill someone if he put out the eye of another person, you could only take out his eye, eye for an eye. Now, as a parent, uh, as a grandparent, I am a firm believer in discipline, but I abhor child abuse. I, uh, you know, I have to lay down. Well, <laughs> we don't take a paper anymore. Back when we took a newspaper. I couldn't finish some articles that would get into detail about child abuse. You know, it was just too graphic and I, I had to lay them aside. But there's nothing wrong in my book with spanking a child. Immediate punishment for bad behavior, to me, has merit. The longer you wait to discipline a child, the less effect it has upon the child. You can send your child to his room or to a corner for time out and it can be counterproductive. It only gives that child time to resent the punishment that you're dealing out to him. Once a child has been spanked and I not we're not talking beating we're talking spankings you can then embrace that child and restore your relationship with them immediately. And you can explain to them why you spanked them. But I also want you to understand that it's a good idea every now and again to explain to your child how grace works and show your child grace. We are to exhibit grace. Grace is to be part of us. I think it's good every now and again when a child has misbehaved, you simply tell them, I forgive you. No punishment required. I think that is exhibiting grace. It's a good thing for us to model grace, at least occasionally. (laughs) As children of God, each and every one of us has been chastised by God. Because he loves us, he corrects us, and that's all chastisement is. And the best example that I have of God dealing with us through mercy and grace is in John chapter 8. So if you would, turn turn to John chapter 8. And we'll read verses 1 through 11. John 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And then they they said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Interesting scene for sure. Right in the middle of Jesus' teaching in the temple, the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman to Jesus who has been caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5. They say, Moses in his law commanded us to stone her. What do you say? Well, actually Moses said you could stone her, but anyway... The religious leaders are trying to set a trap for Jesus. If Jesus lets her go or says, uh, tell her to go free, he isn't obeying the law to them. Stone her, and that goes against showing mercy that Jesus taught. Plus, Rome had took away capital punishment from the Jews, and Rome would have arrested Jesus if he said stone her. But it's difficult to trap God in our schemes. So Jesus, what did he do? He stoops down and he writes on the dusty pavement of the temple floor and the Pharisees continued to press this question before him. They continued to push this issue. And Jesus answers their questions with, He who is without sin among you, cast the first stone. And then Jesus stoops down and he writes on the ground again. Now those who heard it, those who are in this little gathering, those whose conscience is pierced by what Jesus writes, they're convicted of their sin And they begin to leave. They begin to walk out. And they begin with the oldest to the youngest, but they begin to flee. And they simply walk away. That raises the question, what in the world is Jesus writing on the ground that would make all these accusers leave? But we're not told. But it had to have something to do with their own sin. Perhaps even sinning with this same woman that has been caught in adultery. Regardless, all of the woman's accusers leave, and she's left alone with Jesus. And Jesus raises himself up, and he says to the woman, Where are your accusers? Hurry answer is very interesting very revealing but she could have answered in many ways she could have said I was set up by these hypocrites if these men are so righteous where's the man who was sinning with me he's not here or these same men gave me money to commit adultery She could have answered in many ways. But what was her answer? It was very simple, straight to the point, and it's a beautiful answer for she says, No one, Lord. Three words. The woman understood who Jesus was, and she acknowledges with her answer, No one, Lord. She's saying, I'm guilty. But my accusers, they've left. They've gone. And the only person on earth with the right to condemn this woman, the only sinless one who ever lived, declares, neither do I condemn you. Wow, what great words to come from our Lord. Then he tells her, go and sin no more. When you live by the law like the pharisees and the scribes did or when you pretend to live by the law then to execute the judgment of the law you had to be guilt free you couldn't be a breaker of the law to deal out judgment of the law and any good judge under the law would sprinkle in mercy for he understood that he too broke the law. And to break any of the commandments, we're told repeatedly, was to make yourself a breaker of all of the commandments. You couldn't lie and then not be guilty of the rest. If you were a liar, and it's against the commandments, you were guilty of breaking all of the law. Same with stealing, adultery, and all of that. The good news is we have Jesus as our intercessor. Jesus took on our sins. He suffered the cross. He paid our debt to be sin free. And if by faith we accept the work of Jesus on the cross, we can hear from Jesus, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That was the most beautiful words that woman could have ever heard. That God himself said to her, I do not condemn you. We're blessed to, by faith, accept the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because it makes us guilt-free. We don't have to carry guilt. What a blessing to live guilt-free. Appreciate that this morning. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much that we don't have to live under the law. You have satisfied the requirements of the law for us, Jesus. We thank you for that. We thank you for the new covenant, the covenant of your cross, where you paid the debt for our sin. And, Lord, we're so grateful that just simply by faith we can have a right standing before you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the cross, Jesus and for paying our price. And Lord, I would just pray that you would encourage anyone here who needs to repent, for them to repent and ask for your forgiveness. Make that real. Make that a truism in our life, a one of repentance from our sins. Thank you again for going to the cross for us, Jesus. And thank you for not condemning that woman who was caught in sin. And thank you for not condemning us. We relish in your grace. And we thank you for your grace. And we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you would.